1974, Burger King introduced the slogan, Have It Your Way, uh, with the little jingle. I watched it this morning on YouTube. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. And the idea was for people to be able to have options when ordering their food. Instead of everybody eating the same kind of hamburger, now customers can have one suited to their own tastes. And more recently, I didn't know about this, it passed under my radar, more recently in 2014, Burger King updated that slogan from have it your way to be your way. And the thought was that it was a more personal message and it communicated uh, that the customer's options and his preferences go beyond fast food to everything in their life. In a public statement, Burger King said this, that people can and should live how they want anytime. It's okay to not be perfect, they said. Self-expression is most important, and it's our differences that make us individuals instead of robots. Now that's fine if you don't like pickles, or you don't want onions on your burger, or you want a little bit more ketchup added to it. But it doesn't work with everything in life, does it? People can't live how they want when they want. We weren't created to be who we want to be. More specifically, according to our text this morning, the life of a disciple of Jesus cannot be suited to whatever He wants it to be or however He wants it to be. But in many churches today, there are people who claim to be followers of Jesus, yet they want to customize their Christianity. They want to redefine what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And this morning, I want to challenge you to listen to the words of Christ, what He says to His disciples and to each of us who follow Him. And I want you to see that when it comes to following Jesus, there's only one way to do it. God's way. And the only way to be a disciple of Christ is to be one on God's terms. Jesus in our story has just finished responding to Peter's great confession of faith. And verse 21 tells us that from that point on, following Peter's confession and what was likely the shared confession of, of the other disciples, from that time, Jesus began teaching the men about what is sometimes called His passion. This is, uh, if you have a study Bible, it might say something about His first passion prediction. And that is, that God, uh, that is uh, His plan, or God's plan, God's will, for the one whom they believe to be the Christ. The very Son of God. Verse 21 tells us, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And in this verse, we see four musts that make up Jesus' mission. These are four things that Jesus must do in order to fulfill the Father's plan for salvation and for redemption. There are four stages or four steps that accomplish the plan that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit determined long before creation. The first stage was that Jesus must 
go to Jerusalem. You see it right there in the verse. Jesus had said in Luke 13.33, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as Jesus would later say, was the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent it. And He, the greatest prophet, would be no different. He must go to Jerusalem and there suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Jesus would subject Himself to lying accusations cruel beatings, mockings, public shame, and humiliation at the hands of men who claimed to love God, yet rejected His Son. He must do this. There is no other way. It was the Father's will. But He must also be killed by these wicked men. And Jesus has hinted at this before. We, we read it knowing the whole story, knowing what happens next, but Jesus has never really come out specifically and said these things to His disciples. Specifically, He's he's told them that not only is He going to die in Jerusalem, but He is going to be killed. Emphasizing that His death was going to come at the hands of people who should have welcomed Him as their King. But that wouldn't be the end of the story. Yes, Jesus would die. He would be killed. As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus... You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not only must Jesus die or be killed, he must also be raised on the third day. Because without that resurrection, which we celebrated last week, this mission of Christ, this mission of Messiah would be hopeless, be fruitless. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. It's the resurrection that gives us hope. It's the resurrection that makes all of the rest of it worth it. The late preacher Jonathan Edwards once said, if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now the resurrection is God declaring His satisfaction. He thereby declared that it was enough. See, if there was no resurrection three days later after Christ was killed, after He was crucified, it would show that we still carry a sin balance. There's still a debt to be paid. That Jesus' death was not sufficient. And that God's wrath is still abiding on us. Therefore, Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be killed. And on the third day, He must be raised to life. And I think this final little fact must have went right past the disciples as they are taking in what Jesus is saying to them for the first time. And it tells us and it implies that He told this to them over and over again. But imagine the first time you hear this game-changing news from your leader. How can this be? The Messiah isn't supposed to die. He's supposed to reign victoriously. Yes, He must go to Jerusalem, but not to die. Not to be killed. Rather to sit on David's throne. To rule and reign as the King of Israel. So why is Jesus talking about death and suffering? Just as before, I think Peter speaks up for the group, saying what they have all have on their minds. 
Maybe he's emboldened by what Jesus had earlier said to him. And he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He's saying, Jesus, may it never be so. God forbid that you should do anything but die. That you should do anything but reign as the king over Israel, Lord. This will never happen to you, Jesus. And I think Peter meant it. I think even the disciples were silently amening him. Jesus, you're not going to die. You're going to reign as the king. Everything Jesus was saying to them at that time was in direct contradiction to what he understood the Messiah to be. And I think trying to be a good friend and a loyal disciple, Peter, tried to squash this negative, fatalistic talk from his teacher. But Jesus turns to Peter in verse 23 and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And can you imagine the tension in that moment? That sudden, awkward silence. I can imagine all of the disciples freeze. And they slowly look at Jesus and look at Peter. They probably all in support of what Peter was doing, though scared to do it themselves, just happy that someone spoke up. But now I'm sure they're all glad that they didn't speak up. It was Peter. Jesus has just stopped everybody in their tracks. If they were walking down the road, I can imagine they've all stopped now. Standing in the middle of the road. Maybe if they were eating and they've got a glass half to their lips and it just stops right there. What did he just say? Did he really just call Peter Satan? Just a while ago, he praised Peter for what he said. He changed his name. He called him the rock. Now he's calling him Satan. Why was Jesus so upset? Okay, maybe Peter didn't quite get the fact that Jesus must die. That he was the suffering servant. But why go as far as calling him Satan? Well, the problem with Peter's rebuke was that it was very close to another conversation that Jesus has had back in chapter 4. In chapter 4, in the wilderness, Satan was tempting Jesus to bypass the suffering and forego the rejection and the humiliation and take a shortcut to receive the glory he deserved. It was a pain-free option. It was an easier path to glory. In effect, this is exactly what Peter was saying to Jesus now. And Peter wanted Jesus to be the Christ without suffering. He, wanted, uh, he was telling Jesus to be the Messiah without the cross. And that was different than God's plan. Though Peter meant well, and I think he had really good intentions, he found himself in direct opposition to the Father's plan. Like Satan, he was setting a trap for Christ. Which is what Jesus meant to him when he said, you are a hindrance to me. It's the same word, scandalizo, that we've seen so many different times. We've seen it as stumbling block. We've seen it as offense. Jesus is saying, you're an offense to me, Peter. You're a stumbling block. So get behind me, 
Satan. Now, why would Peter say this? Why would Peter say such devilish things? Why would Peter want Jesus to avoid the suffering that Jesus was saying he must endure? Well, Jesus explains why. He says in the next part, because he was not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The King James translates it as, you savorest not. You do not savor the things of God. The New American Standard, I like how it translated it. It says, it's, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter was thinking from a human perspective, with a human wisdom, not God's. Peter was focused on what made sense to him, rather than what God designed. God's interests were suffering, pain, Death and resurrection. But man's interests, like Satan's in the wilderness, were no suffering, no pain, no dying, only gain and glory. And for this reason, Jesus rebukes Peter. Because although well-intentioned, Peter's purposes were more devilish than divine. Jesus had said to them in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And though Peter didn't realize it, unless Jesus went to the cross, Peter could not be saved. His sins could not be forgiven. For that matter, your sins would not be forgiven. My sins could not be forgiven if, Peter, if Jesus did not go to the cross. Peter would remain in his sins and under condemnation. So it was God's will that Jesus would suffer and die on the cross, but then rise again to life and secure the salvation of everyone who believes in Him. This is the Father's plan. This is what Messiah must do. But then Jesus continued, but now speaking not just to Peter, but to all the disciples, After telling them what the Messiah must do, He tells them what the disciples must do. Just as the Father has a will for Jesus, the Christ, He also has a will for all of those who would come after Him. Jesus teaches this because He wants His men to understand that not only who He is as the Messiah, but who they are as His followers. He gives specific instructions to his disciples and explains that you can't follow Jesus on your own terms. There are certain requirements for discipleship. Based on what Jesus says, being a disciple of Christ is more than just making a profession of faith. It's more than saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's more than saying, I know who Jesus is. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to come after Jesus must deny himself. That means rejecting his own interests, his own desires. Connecting it back to verse 23 about the the interests of God and the interests of man. We see that there are God's interests and man's interests. The things of God and the things of man. And to truly be a disciple of Christ, you must deny yourself. You must deny your interests. 
What does that mean to deny yourself? Well, it actually carries the same meaning, the same idea as when Peter denied Christ in chapter 26. We know what, he, what Peter did when he denied Christ in the, during his, his arrest. But here, instead of denying Christ, Jesus is saying, deny yourself. It's refusing to recognize or acknowledge. It's acting in a wholly selfless manner. At the beginning of chapter 15, we read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there, we saw that the Pharisees were marked by self-righteousness. And the Sadducees were marked by self-indulgence or self-pleasure. Here, Jesus says that disciples of His are marked by self-denial. But not only must true disciples of Christ deny themselves, they also must die. Jesus told the disciples that they must take up their cross. And Jesus hadn't specifically stated to them yet that He was headed for the cross. We know that. We kind of read into that because we already know that. But at this point, all He had told them was that He was going to be killed. And this blew their minds. He hadn't told them about how He would be killed yet. But the disciples were very familiar with the Roman crucifixion. Jesus wasn't the first person to die on a cross. It happened uh, long before uh, His crucifixion. And the process was very familiar to all of those people in that area. And they knew when He said, take up your cross. They knew exactly what He meant. When someone was going to be crucified, it was the custom for that person to carry their cross through the streets of town to the place where they would die. It was a public display of their condemnation. And it served as a warning to all those that that person passed by that this is what happens when you don't get in line. This is what happens when you reject Roman authority. When a person was seen carrying his cross, everybody knew there was no coming back. There was no see you later. This was the final goodbye. This was the last thing that person would do. This person had one purpose in life now. Only one thing in his future. Death. And Jesus was telling his disciples very clearly that by following him, there could only be one purpose. It would only end one way. Now, that might imply physical death, although it doesn't necessarily mean that. For most of the disciples... We know that following Jesus did mean physical suffering. And it did mean death for His name. Not all of them, but most of them. But that's not exactly, entirely, what Jesus was referring to here. And verses 25 and 26 clarify that what He is speaking about isn't strictly physical death or physical suffering. It certainly is a willingness to die for the cause of Christ, for the sake of Christ, if that's the Father's will. But that's not the case for everyone. What it does mean for every disciple is an actual death to self. It's to sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul hadn't literally been crucified. But figuratively, he had died. As far as his old life was concerned, he was dead. And the life he was currently living wasn't his, 
for Christ's. To the Colossians, Paul wrote, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Again, it's, it's not a command to kill or physically harm yourself, but rather to kill the sin and anything that keeps you from following after Christ. And it's interesting that when Luke wrote in his Gospel these same words that Jesus is saying about denying yourself and take up your cross, he adds one word that Matthew didn't include, and the word is daily. Luke 9.23, it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not a one-time thing that you do. You don't just one time, one point in your life, take up your cross and die to your sin and self and the flesh. Don Carson writes, death to self is not so much a prerequisite of discipleship to Jesus as a continuing characteristic of it. Jesus said that when you've denied yourself and taken up your cross, now you're ready to follow Me. Because discipleship isn't just self-denial, and it isn't just death to self. It's an active following after Jesus. It's an active pursuit of Christ. These are the requirements if you're going to follow Jesus. But notice also that there are results, he tells us, of discipleship. Our response to Jesus' requirements, whether or not we say yes to Him and no to ourselves, determines whether you lose your life or find it. Verse 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You, you are either going to lose your life or find it. One of the two. And by trying to save your life, instead of denying and dying to selfish interests, you'll end up losing what you've tried to save. But if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, and that's a key phrase there, for Jesus' sake, He says you'll find it. It's one of the great paradoxes of the Bible. The way to find your life is to lose it. To deny yourself and to take up a cross. And the harder you try to save your life, the more you end up losing it. Jesus asks them here, what will it profit you to gain the whole world and yet forfeit, lose your own soul? It's interesting here that the words life And soul are the exact same words and they're just used in different ways to help us to understand that He's implying more than physical life. It's bigger than this. It's a matter of eternity. What would it matter to have 70 or 80 years on this earth and have everything that this world could offer, everything that this world could give you, and then to lose it all and end up with nothing that matters for eternity. What are the few short years that we spend on this earth in comparison to the eternity that is to come? My friend, don't forfeit eternity with God for a few shiny things on earth. What is the value of your soul? Is it really worth less than all the temporary pleasures of life? Listen to Jesus' question. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Hear what he's saying. He's not asking, how much would you sell your soul for? 
Or how much would you give your uh, give for your soul to? Uh, or would how much would you have to give your soul for to get? He's saying the opposite. He's saying how much would you give in exchange? Give in return for your soul. What is the value of your life? Your eternal soul. Certainly, there's nothing in this world or even all of the treasures of this world put together that will seem worth the loss or the forfeit of the even greater prize that is your life. Those who hear Christ's words and take what He says to heart, He promises here, it won't be disappointed. Jesus promises in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. There will be a reckoning. Christ will return. And when He comes, He will repay each person according to what He's done in this life. So, live with eternity in mind. Live each day with Christ's return in view. These are what we call apocalyptic verses. They're verses that, that, that tell us what will be one day. And though we struggle to understand exactly everything that Jesus is saying, one thing is very clear. Jesus is coming again. He will return, and He will repay. So Christian, eagerly expect your King to come. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a disciple of Christ, know this, He will return. And He will judge the world. Now this passage is clearly directed to those who claim to follow Jesus. And those are the people that I want to talk to. Those of you, those of us, who say, I'm a Christian. Because we look around at what is passed off as Christianity today. It often looks very different than what Jesus is, is describing here. People today want to make the confession that Peter made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is Lord. But then they want to live as if they are the Lord. We want a convenient Christianity. A comfortable life. A pain-free discipleship. One that doesn't cost much, if anything. One that requires as little as necessary. One that lets us modify it as it suits us. One that allows us to make it up as we go. We want Jesus to work for us. To fit into our lives. To fit into my plans. To fit into my schedule and my agenda. This week, I've had one thought. And I, as I prayed throughout the week, I said, I, I, I want this to come across as lovingly, but as clearly as possible. One thought to convince each one of us of one of two things. Either you're a disciple of Jesus or you're not. I want to convince you that you are a disciple or that you're not a disciple. That you are a Christian or that you're not. I want to convince true disciples that they really are disciples. 
that they are following Him that, and that His way is the best way and His way is worth it and, 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 and encourage you to keep following after Him because He knows what's best. But if you're not really a disciple of Jesus, and I'm not here to determine if you are or not, but if you're not, I want you to know that you're not. I want you to be convinced. I don't want you to live this life, leave this church, live the rest of your life thinking, I'm good, and then find out one day, you're not. I want to convince you of the truth. That if you're doing Christianity your way, instead of God's way, if you're being a Christian the way that you want to do it rather than the way that Jesus talks about it here or the way that the apostles have written about it in the Scriptures, then you're not really following Jesus. You're not really a disciple. Don't think that because you make a confession. Last Sunday we looked at the confession that Peter made and said that you you have to be able to make this kind of a confession and it's not do you believe in Jesus, but who do you believe Jesus is? That Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And when we really understand what that means, it changes everything. But just because you know how to put those words together in a sentence and it comes out of your mouth, it's not enough. Just because you affirm Christ, it's not all that there is. The question is, what are you focused on? What do you savor in this life? Are you daily setting your mind on the things of God? Through His grace and the power of His Spirit, are you following His will? His will? Or have you thought, I'll have it my way. That as long as I say the right words, I'm good. As long as I show up on Sunday for an hour, you know, because it is the Lord's Day, then Monday through Saturday belong to me. Are you setting your mind on the things of God? Or on the things of man? Do you deny yourself? Or do you live for yourself? Have you taken up a cross? Are you forsaking all and following Jesus? If we're going to follow Jesus, we need to know that His plans are going to conflict with ours. His expectations won't match yours or mine. But when it comes to following Jesus, it must be His way. Grant Osborne wrote, No Christian dare dictate to Christ what kind of Lord He is to be. Following Jesus my way isn't following Jesus at all. To follow Jesus means to follow Him, not lead. To follow Jesus means to do it His way, God's way. We can't follow Jesus on our own terms. Discipleship must be on God's terms not at all.